Welcome to Old Boys Club. A podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a silly question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work briefly in politics. My name's Matilda Bosley. I am also a Melbourne-based journalist and my cat pulled my hair out of my scalp last night. (laughs) Because he wanted to wake me up for food. And what that says to me is not only does he understand the concept of pain, he's willing to use it. And I'm worried about that. (laughs) Coming up on the show today, a former female Liberal MP has come out swinging against the Morrison government, accusing the Prime Minister of trying to silence her. She also alleges that a different cabinet minister made an inappropriate sexual advance towards her. You know what this government needed? More (laughs) gender-based scandals. (laughs) Yeah, the timing is is not great for the government. Next, we're going to talk about the most interesting story about the most boring thing, how the government used dodgy car parks to win the last federal election. It's almost like when government misappropriation of funds is on the most boring possible topic, we all don't think about it and then nothing gets changed. (laughs) They only do the dodgy scandals around things that are too boring for people to pay attention to. Don't you dare try and do any dodgy scandals around a brothel. People will pay attention. (laughs) But first, Matilda, how was your week? My week has been good, aside from obviously like not having any sleep because of the hair pulling, (laughs) as previously mentioned by my cat. Um, My week started so abruptly, (laughs) which is at 6am, I got a call. I was like from a number that I hadn't said, so I'm like, I'm not answering this. Get a text from like a radio station being like, we've had a guest dropped out. Quickly think of like one small moment that changed your life and can you be on air in like 20 minutes or half an hour this is monday morning monday morning 6 a.m waking up have no (laughs) earthly concept of where i am what time (laughs) what year so they were like we need one moment that like changed your life and i was like i mean i can do it like i'll help you know you know help out i've been on like i I go on each other radio occasionally to talk about things that's not i'm very important (laughs) (laughs) just very occasionally do small radio sessions (laughs) at the Um, last minute when people drop out yeah yeah yeah. i'm I'm everyone's last option for radio so just (laughs) jot it down guys um so what you talk about oh i i pulled something out of the hat i actually had something which was great and i like went on air and i spoke about it and went well which was that I had a panic attack in my final VCE specialist maths exam now for anyone in Victoria that was a flex that I did specialist maths just write it down just note it oh god you don't even know you don't even know but basically I read the clock wrong thought I had like half an hour less than I had panicked was like crying writing down all this like all the answers I had also just watched the Grey's Anatomy episode where there's like the shooter in the hospital so I was a bit high tension anyway don't watch that episode before an exam oh my God. I was crying I was like do I pretend to faint to like get special consideration and so I ended up <laughs> not doing it and I really regretted it and then basically the whole point of this was that I ended up missing out on getting into law school by one point oh. which at the time was devastating because I'd like dedicated my life to like getting into law school, like mm. get that ATAR. Turns out when I didn't get in, I was like, why aren't I sad? Yeah. And then went to school, found journalism, got obsessed with it, absolutely loved it, could have transferred into law like 
five different times and kept accidentally like on purpose forgetting like oh no the dates passed and just kept putting off law school again and again and again and turns out I never actually wanted to go and uh, I really love journalism so that was uh, my one little reading the clock wrong changed my life but for good reason and I'm not a spiritual person but I was like was that God question mark <laughs> anyway that was my little that was my little one moment busted that out very early in the morning I got into law school. But, okay. But no, but I was going to say that like it wasn't it wasn't worth it and I ended up doing journalism. So, you know, you just got there faster than me. It's amazing how we have made all of the same decisions at every <laughs> point. <in. laughs> we were meant to be friends, I feel I like. I think we were, what, definitely. Do you have that though, like little tiny things that you're like, oh, that changed the whole course of my life? Yeah, I actually do. When you were talking about that story, I was thinking about um, a moment that I could pinpoint. So when I was first year university, I just decided to do this radio show on campus with mm. two people I lived with. Was this first year law school or after you no, already dropped first, out? No, this is when I dropped out of law school. I was first year journalism school in Sydney. Um, and I decided to do this breakfast radio show on like the student radio network with these two people I lived with. And it was a lot of fun, but it was really early in like a, in the, on a Thursday morning. And I remember I woke up one Thursday morning at 10 to 8 when we were supposed to be at the radio station. And I very nearly didn't rock up. I was like, oh, I'm so tired, but I don't want to let people down. Oh, okay, I'll go. I wore like the hoodie that I slept in and I just like put jeans on. I had like unbrushed hair. I looked terrible. Anyway, I rocked up at the radio station and there was this person sitting there, this guy. The whole radio show had been like interrupted because this guy wanted to record all of these like promo stings for this radio show he was doing and he needed voice actors and he knew the people I'd lived with so he was getting them to do it that's why he crashed our radio show and so I was like oh he's kind of cute okay I'm gonna do a really good job and so I really like performed these radio this like script he gave us and I remember he left and I was like oh damn he's cute and nice where do I meet guys like that anyway I met him again two weeks later at a ball and he remembered me and and now he's sitting across the table from me six years later (laughs) It's a good punchline, except Alex just kept looking at me, smiling, waiting for me to like, Peter was like, no, I know the story, Alex. <laughs> um, I know it's you. I've got it. <laughs> He's like, huh? are you ready? You ready? You ready? You, re- you ready? You ready for the reveal? It's me. Um, no, but like, I, but like, seriously, I nearly didn't rock up to the radio show that morning and then we never would have met. Yeah. And I rocked up in, in sweatpants with unbrushed hair and he still he still loved me. So What you know. an absolute cutie pie. That's my moment. Anyway. Aww. Speaking <laughs> of a true love, love, love and all things, if you do love this show, there's a way to support <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yes, we are now on Patreon. So if you're listening and you love our show, you can now support us by becoming a patron. It's like $3 a month and it helps us cover the cost of running the show, which means that we can keep doing it in the long term. So just to be clear, the core podcast itself is always going to remain totally free. We're very committed to making sure political information is as accessible as possible. But the Patreon is just a way that if you want to and have the means to support the show and help make sure that we can keep doing this in the long run, that's the place to go. Plus, we will be posting behind the scenes content on our Patreon as a way of saying thank you. So if you'd like to become a patron, you can join us at www.patreon.com forward slash old boys club pod. But also financially supporting isn't the 
only way to support the podcast. We talk about this each week. But if you were keen to help out and wanted to spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell tell your family. Recommend it to someone. uh, Spread the good word. Or uh, take a screenshot of you listening to the podcast and pop it up on your Instagram story. And tag Old Boys Club Pod on Instagram. And we'll give you a cheeky little shout out at the end of the episode. It genuinely does just help us so much. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Before we dive into this week's stories, we want to acknowledge the situation that's happening in Sydney. Sydney's going into lockdown. They are facing rising case numbers of COVID. And if you'd like to get informed about the political side of these lockdowns, we covered this in our last two episodes, so go check them out. And if you're wanting day-to-day updates throughout the week on the situation, I'm actually on the Guardian's live blog each morning, uh, taking people through the press conferences, all the breaking news, situations like that. Uh, It's a good way to just keep up with everything. Turning to our first story for this week, former federal Liberal MP Julia Banks came forward and revealed the sexism that she allegedly endured while she was in government from 2016 to 2019. So this is all part of a book that she's just released, but the main thrust of the conversations came from an interview with ABC 730 uh, last Monday, where she revealed that a government minister had allegedly made unwanted sexual advances towards her. She also had some pretty scathing words for the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. She called him, quote, I'm going to read this, a menacing, controlling wallpaper trying to imply, I think, that Scott Morrison had eyes all over Parliament. That is not what that says to me. Like, <laughs> I don't. I never sort of think about, like, wallpaper as the all-knowing presence within a room. I never really thought you'd put the word menacing with wallpaper in the one sentence. But, yeah. you know, here we are. Here we are. Um, so why don't you explain to me first who actually is Julia Banks? Okay, so Julia Banks only entered politics quite late in her career. For most of her career, she was a corporate lawyer, and she's definitely not one of those politicians who worked her way up through the ranks of a political party. You know, a lot of politicians, they start out working in another politician's office as a staffer or an advisor, or, you know, maybe if they were for the Labor Party, they might work for a union. She worked as a corporate lawyer, so very separate to that world of politics. It was only in 2016 that she ran for the House of Representatives for the Liberal Party. Now, She was pretty instrumental to the Liberal National Coalition winning government that year. So she ran for the seat of Chisholm, which covers a number of eastern suburbs in Melbourne and won. And the reason why it was such a significant victory is because it had been held by the Labor Party, this seat, since 1998. So it was a marginal seat, meaning that you know, it could go either way. It wasn't like had a huge overwhelming number of votes for Labor. Yeah, but that means that it's like the battleground states. The marginal seats are like they're the ones that really they're the ones that like people really try to contest because it's the place where either party can try and win seats back to get into government or, you know, they might lose seats, meaning they lose government. So it was a really close election. And in fact, Julia was the only Liberal National Coalition candidate in the entire 2016 election to win a seat held by the opposition party. Oh, really? And this was really really significant because the government at the time, so the Liberal National Coalition government, they actually lost 14 seats in this election. So the fact that she won a seat was really significant for them being able to retain power. I'm guessing she was feeling pretty shocked about herself (laughs) walking into Parley. And I think it's important to note all this because it's going to come into the significance of her, you know, helping the government maintain majority is going to come back in a bit. So hold on to that thought. Okay, so what actually happened to Julia while she was in government? Okay, so we need to go back to August 2018. Ah, the before time. (laughs) 
<laughs> so this was when the leadership spill within the Liberal National Government took place. So you might remember Malcolm Turnbull used to be Prime Minister. I and, remember. Yes. And in August, multiple men in the Liberal Party started to challenge Malcolm Turnbull for the leadership of the Liberal Party, meaning they were challenging him to become Prime Minister. Ah. Uh, yes. Dutton. Yes, so Peter Dutton, he challenged him. That didn't work out. Scott Morrison challenged him. That did work out. Yeah. So Scott Morrison. It was a messy week. It was a very messy week. So multiple leadership challenges. Scott Morrison emerges the victor, becomes the Prime Minister of Australia. Now, the significance of this challenge goes beyond just who is the leader of the political party. It was propelled by this massive conservative push from within the Liberal Party to get more conservatives in higher positions of power within government. So Scott Morrison, much more conservative than Malcolm Turnbull. He was much more of like a centre-right kind of player. So, you know, economically had more conservative views than, say, the Labor Party, but socially much more progressive than Scott Morrison. So as an example of this, Malcolm Turnbull, way more uh, for same-sex marriage than a number of other people within the Liberal Party. Also, for example, Scott Morrison brought in a piece of coal as show and tell <laughs> into Parliament. <laughs> yes. So this was also reflective, though, of a much larger push that was happening within the Liberal Party to get more Conservatives into power. And this was actually happening in Victoria at the time, where Julia Banks held her seat of Chisholm. So there was this push within the Victoria branch of the Liberal Party to get more conservative members of the party to challenge who was going to run for the Liberal Party at the next federal election. Yeah, so before you go to election, you have pre-selection where the parties essentially decide the candidate that's going to run. Yeah. And so all the conservatives are like, "Mm, let's not run this sort of moderate candidate who's already in, let's try and get a more conservative person to run instead. Yes. And so even though certain people had already been pre-selected, for example, Julia Banks for her seat, because she'd already won it once, she won it in a landslide, there was this uh, bubbling tension where members of the conservative Victorian Liberal Party were wanting to like challenge her pre-selection for that seat and get a more conservative person in there. So Julia Banks was more moderate on the moderate side of things. Yes. So this is also important to note. Julia Banks, very centrist, like very moderate. So like pro-same-sex marriage, pro-climate action. She made some concerning comments at one point about uh, how she could live on $40 a day. Which like- is essentially the the argument is that Centrelink is about $40 a day, unemployment payments, and that's impossible to live on. Yeah. And then she, quite a privileged rich person who's been a corporate lawyer yeah. her whole life, comes out and be like, I could live on 40 a day. And everyone's like, no. Probably not. Probably You've never, not. You probably haven't had to for maybe most of your life, um, if at all. Have you heard of rent? Julia. <laughs> um, so that was probably her most like controversial statement that she made in politics, but she was for the most part very socially progressive and seen as for, a, for the Liberal Party. For the Liberal Party. That's that's important to make that clear. Yeah. Uh, so she didn't like this overarching push that was happening and it was very concerning when Scott Morrison got in because it was seen as a real victory for the conservative side of the Liberal Party and reflective of this war that was being waged against people like herself. Didn't she say that Turnbull's ousting was like the last straw? And when she spoke to 7.30 on Monday, she said, and I quote, that there was a cultural gender bias, bullying and intimidation of women in politics. And she also said that she herself had experienced bullying and intimidation, quote, from within my own party and from the Labor Party. So in response to this happening, Julia came out and said 
I'm not going to contest the next election. I, I'm not going to run in the 2019 federal election. I'm leaving my seat. I'm out of politics. I don't like what's happening. Which was pretty weird for like someone who's managed to sort of win this state seat after a long time, kind of heralded as this great victory, to give up on politics after one term. But then it got even worse. So in November, Banks stood up in the House of Representatives and announced that she was leaving the Liberal Party immediately and moving to the crossbench as an independent. Now, you might be wondering how that's possible. So when you're elected to parliament, you're elected as the individual candidate, not as a representative of that party. You're, you're voting for Julia Banks. You're not voting for the Liberal Party. So she's allowed to retain that seat even if she does leave the Liberal Party. Okay, so she says, I'm leaving the Liberal Party. I'm moving to the crossbends. What, what does that mean? Like, what are the ramifications of that? So it didn't affect the Liberal National Coalition's ability to retain government. They still had a majority of the seats in the House of Representatives, which is the prerequisite that you need to hold government. But it was a really bad look to have someone from their party leave the party rather unceremoniously and go and become an independent. And the reasoning that Julia gave for this decision was pretty scathing towards the government at the time. She said, that the party had, quote, changed largely due to the actions of the reactionary and regressive right wing who talk about and to themselves rather than listening to the people. These are pretty scathing comments, um, especially against a government that people had you know, started to fear, had become too conservative. Now, if you remember, I said before, Malcolm Turnbull, he was the one who won the 2016 election. People voted for a government based on more moderate centrist principles led by a centrist. And so, There was a lot of public concern at the time that Scott Morrison was going to make the party more conservative and taken it in a direction that voters didn't like. And Julia was basically confirming all those fears. So what you're telling me is that Julia Banks came in, seemed like she was going to be the party's saviour and then ended up being an absolute nuisance for them. And very much fell out of favour. Yes. And her leaving the Liberal National Coalition wasn't significant enough to see the Liberal government lose the next federal election. No, if if you remember, um, we we currently have a coalition government. (laughs) That that suggests to me that they won the last election. Yes. But it definitely was a point of concern at the time. Yeah. So um, she doesn't quite disappear after that. She actually um, did run in the next federal election, but weirdly like in a different seat, in the seat of Flinders, which is, if you remember, that's the seat that the health minister, Greg Hunt, currently holds. So she was contesting the health minister's seat, Mm. and then she only came third, she only got 14% of the vote, and then she kind of vanished into the background, disappeared. You know, she wasn't in parliament anymore. She She, wasn't in the public eye. Yeah. She disappeared for two years. Faded back, and then, oh boy, did she come back. So tell me about her re-emergence into public discourse last Monday and this ABC interview. What happened? Take me through it. Yes. So on Monday, Julia went on the ABC's show 7.30 to promote her new book called Power Play, in which she talks about the boys club that is federal politics. Bing, 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 bing. Did she copy our podcast name? <laughs> Question. Hard to tell. I, I mean, I, I think that our podcast is named after a pretty common like phrase that's nah, used in politics. Nah. but. Nah, hard to tell. <laughs> nah, we're going to sue her. Banks, you will be receiving our invoice. <laughs> um, 
So, but seriously, it was a really... Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, we're just talking about a really serious topic. I guess we'll go back to being serious about it, Justine. (laughs) Okay. Okay, let's go back to the very damning allegations. Yes. So Julia made three very serious allegations around the toxic sexist culture that is in federal parliament. So they're around Scott Morrison's treatment of her when she left politics, around Scott Morrison's, the culture he created while he was leader, and around another unrelated cabinet minister who uh, inappropriately touched her in a meeting. Okay, let's let's break it down. So go through it first. How did Scott Morrison treat her once she announced that she was leaving? Okay, so Julia says that she gave Scott Morrison and his office a few days notice before she announced that she was not going to recontest her seat at the next federal election. Which, as we noted beforehand, was going to raise some eyebrows, given that how gloriously she sort of came into her seat to begin with. And also, it's not a good look to have this Liberal Party election star uh, resigning from her seat just very shortly after Scott Morrison comes into power. Like it looks like a political party and a government in turmoil, which is not a look that anyone wants. And so I'm assuming the Prime Minister just said, yes, thank you, I totally understand, we will support you all the way. Yeah? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so first he tried to convince her not to do this. This is uh, allegedly from, from Julia Banks' retelling. Yes, she alleges that Scott Morrison called her and said, look, don't do this stay in government, recontest the next election. She's like, no, I'm doing this. He's like, okay, delay it by a few months. Delay your announcement by a few months. Don't make it so it's just after, like, you know, we've had this change of hand of government power. She's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm announcing it this week. And he says, okay. Apparently he said, give me 24 hours. So Julia says, she said, sure, okay, I'll give you 24 hours. I won't announce it straight away. I'll let you get your ducks in a row, um, process this information. She says that this was her first big mistake because she alleges that she later found out the Prime Minister's office started telling journalists and people within the Liberal Party that she'd had this complete emotional breakdown. She couldn't handle the fact that Scott Morrison had overtaken Malcolm Turnbull and become the leader, and she was just not coping. And so she says that that narrative perpetuated. So she went on like leave for a couple of days to take some time out. This was all very stressful, all the media attention around her and the fact that she was not going to recontest the election. And she says that during that time, Scott Morrison was asked at a press conference, oh, like, like, how do you feel about Julia Banks leaving? And he said, quote, all I'm doing right now is checking in with Julia, making sure she's okay. All that matters at the moment is Julia's welfare in what has been a really torrid time for her. So essentially what Banks is alleging is that she had these legitimate political you know, ideological reasons, reasons. ideological reasons for leaving and the government, in order to save face, painted her out to be essentially this hysterical, unstable woman who couldn't handle the kind of dramas of politics day to day. She's had this mental breakdown. She's had to leave. And that way it's not the government's fault. It's like an individual responsibility on banks for leaving. And that goes some way to explaining why she was sort of so scathing towards the Liberal Party when she announced that she was going to be resigning from the Liberal Party and moving to the crossbench. Yes, and so this takes us to the second thing that she alleges, which is that In those three months between when she said she was not going to contest the next election to when she announced that she was going to leave the Liberal Party and sit on the crossbench, Mm -hmm. she alleges that Scott Morrison as Prime Minister really cultivated this sexist, toxic culture within the Liberal National Coalition. What what do you mean by that? What's this sort of sexist culture that's been cultivated? So she says, firstly, that quote, that he was like, quote, a menacing, controlling wallpaper. But 
To elaborate that a little bit. I still don't understand that quote at all. (laughs) She says, quote, he wanted me silenced. He wanted me to be quiet. He wanted me out of the parliament. I mean, he wanted me out of the country. And so I think I think where I kind of need the clarity is like I think it's understandable that politicians would denigrate someone who's trying to leave the pack, try to save face. What what was the actions that she says sort of made this really a kind of toxic sexist attack specifically? So she says that Scott Morrison allegedly tried to, quote, drag me through this sexist spectrum narrative. So on the one hand, he was trying to paint her out to be this over-emotional woman who was leaving politics because she just couldn't cut it. But then on the other hand, he was trying to paint her allegedly as this, quote, bully bitch, you know, this this really aggressive woman who wanted to get her own way, who couldn't work within a team environment and support her party. So essentially, she is such a raging cow that when she doesn't get her way, she can't cope, she has a mental breakdown, and then she leaves, which is... Not a narrative that's painted on men, I think you could argue. (laughs) I think that's what she was trying to make very clear, that like on the one hand, she was an over-emotional woman. On the other hand, she was this aggressive woman. And in no scenario was she acting reasonably and reclaiming power against a government that she didn't support. Yeah. If that's all how it played out, I can see how how one might imagine that that is a little gendered. And that takes us to the third allegation that she made, which is that she was inappropriately touched by a completely different cabinet minister who she did not name. Okay, yeah. So she's kept this person anonymous. We don't know who it is. This is a pretty serious allegation. Walk me through what she says happened. So she says that there was this evening where all of the Liberal National Parliamentarians were corralled into the Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull's office. And the reason for this was because they had a really important piece of legislation they all needed to vote on. He wanted them all in the same place at the same time so no one would miss the votes. They were, you know, it's not like weird that they were all in his office. She says that she sat down on the couch and a man, a senior cabinet minister, she said, sat down next to her put his hand on her knee and then ran his hand up the inside of her thigh and Mm. then just like got up and walked away. And she said that she got up herself and like walked to the snacks table and said to another female MP, quote, can you stay talking to me because he made a move on me. And this is not the first time that there's been allegations of sort of inappropriate sexual advances towards women within Parliament House by any way, shape or form. Yeah, and I think that that's why... Sadly, this is not that shocking an allegation to be made because we've heard this narrative so many times in the last year in particular. Yeah, like we, we hear little stories about this, but it's not usually like between two politicians in a room full of other politicians mm. quite blatantly. I think that's what has really kind of stirred the attention of this allegation compared to other ones. So, Matilda, what has the Prime Minister and the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, had to say about Julia's allegations? So since this has all happened, a spokesperson for the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has said in a statement that Morrison was not aware of any allegations of sexual harassment that Miss Banks faced and that any such behaviour would be completely inappropriate. But these allegations obviously are about a minister in the former Turnbull government, not Morrison's directly. Uh, So the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, has released a statement He said he was not aware of the alleged incident involving the cabinet minister until he had already left the prime ministership. But Justine, to close us off, how will this affect the Morrison government? Like, what what is the ramifications of this? Because this, as we said, is not the first scandal of its type that we've faced in the last year. 
Yes. So the Morrison government has been concerned about how a number of scandals around the sexist culture in parliament and sexual assault in parliament are going to affect its chances at the next federal election. And we are seeing that Julia Banks's appearance on 7.30 is already having an effect on the number of women voting for the coalition government. So polling published in the Sydney Morning Herald this week showed that women have swung against the coalition and they've cut the government's primary vote from 41 to 37% amongst female voters since the last federal election. So that's pretty significant. That's that's multiple percentage point loss. Yes. Um do we I mean like obviously the government's got a lot of other stuff going on at the moment yes. as well, but you know, it's that's worth noting. But does this mean that Anthony Albanese is going to beat Scott Morrison in a landslide? Well, no, because the polling also showed that Scott Morrison is still the preferred prime minister amongst women above Anthony Albanese. So 45% of women would still vote for Scott Morrison versus 22% of women for Anthony Albanese. It's amazing to me the number of scandals this government can have with seemingly no ramifications in the polls. Absolutely. But I think also it's important to note that polling is not conclusive. We've seen in multiple past federal elections that the polling has not indicated the actual outcome of the federal election. So I don't think that we should be deciding or predicting what's going to be happening at the next federal election based on these numbers. We don't even know when the federal election's going to be. Justine. Yes. Buckle in. Okay. (laughs) It's time we talk about car parks. (laughs) It's not as boring as it sounds, sounds I promise, I swear. So this whole situation surrounds the fact that the federal government promised $660 million in a car park scheme at the last federal election. Basically, they were going to build car parks at train stations so that more people could, you know, drive there, leave their car, commute into the city via public transport. And last week, this important government oversight body found that none of the 47 car park projects promised were actually properly selected by the Department of Infrastructure with expert advice. Instead, they were handpicked by politicians and candidates to be built in electorates that the government was keen to either hold on to or win from other parties at the last federal election. This has been labelled by pretty much everyone in the world as pork barrelling. But, you know, we're going to break it down for you. What is pork barrelling anyway? Why does everyone keep bringing up the sports rorts whenever we talk about car parks? And um, is there actually any consequences for governments taking action like this? Okay, so let's start off easy, Matilda. What is pork barrelling? Okay, so pork barrelling is like a fairly common political word. (laughs) It refers to cases where governments are seen to have been putting taxpayer money towards projects that are solely designed to basically win over voters and help them remain in power. Okay, so government gets all this money from taxpayers, they're putting it towards different projects, and they're like, ooh, let's put some of this money towards projects that are going to help us stay in power. Yeah. That's going to help us like win a lot of favour. Oh, I'm worried about this one little area. Let's build a bunch of amenities for them so they vote for us. And the contrast is that governments are supposed to be using taxpayer money to benefit lots of people. And pork barrelling is when they're using money to benefit themselves. Now, I did Google where the term pork barrelling came from. Please tell me. Couldn't figure it out. Seems really weird. (laughs) (laughs) I suggest generally that like pork 
is like a term used to refer to government money and then you put it in a barrel and I don't know. It was like it's like a metaphor on top of a metaphor and it goes back to the 1800s and I couldn't work it out. So I don't know. There's some fucking pork in a barrel. What do you want from me? If you're an etymologist, then please write in. Please write in and let us know where it comes from. I don't know. I looked at the Wikipedia page. It was too complicated. I looked at the Encyclopedia Britannica. Couldn't understand it. That's where I gave up. Okay. Okay. But this isn't the first time that people have been accused of pork barreling. Oh, no. Pork barreling has a long history in Australian politics. Um, And one of the most recent uh, examples of this is the sports rort scandal from 2019. Mm. And it's worth explaining what the sports rort scandal actually was because every time someone keeps mentioning these car parks, they say, it's like the sports rorts on steroids. (laughs) So, Justine, you were actually working in politics in the wake of sports rorts. Why don't you explain what that whole situation was to me? So this story first broke in 2020, but it refers to something that was happening in the lead up to the 2019 federal election. So in the lead up to the election, the federal government announced this sporting community grant scheme where they were giving money out to different like community sporting clubs or facilities as part of this official grant that was being handed out by the Minister for Sport, who at the time was Bridget McKenzie. Yeah, and this was this was something that like the government was doing. This wasn't like an election promise by the coalition party. This was like them as their positions as the leader of the country were just rolling out this program because the country needed it. Yeah, and so all of these different sporting facilities applied for the funding. They selected a bunch of them and announced the funding in the lead up to the federal election. Okay, cool. So the reason why this scheme was so controversial is because people from other political parties like the Labor Party were looking at all of the different sporting clubs and uh, teams that got funding and noticing that a lot of them were located in electorates that the federal government wanted to hold onto or win from someone like the Labor Party at the election. Remember what we said about marginal electorates being like the real battlegrounds? Yes. There was a lot of like new soccer club changing rooms happening (laughs) in marginal electorates. (laughs) Yes. So all of these sporting clubs were located just coincidentally in these marginal electorates. So the Labor Party referred it to this uh, body that oversees the government handing out of money. They reviewed it. And then last year, they published this scathing report, which found that not only were a lot of the community organizations that won this money in these marginal seats or ones that the government wanted to win from the Labor Party, but they weren't deemed the most meritorious, the most deserving when the Department of Sport looked and reviewed all these grant applications. Yeah. And there were actually applications that they ranked really highly and really deserving of this money that didn't get any money. Instead, it went to these community organisations in seats that they wanted to win. And this will come into car parks later. But in an ideal world, when you've got a grant program like this being like, we're going to do a bunch of things to help a lot of areas, you'd write up a list of like every area or everyone who wants a new car park or a new sporting facility, rank them all in order of need and say you're going to give out 44, you do the top 44. You know, like it's it's the people who are the most needy, it's the people who are going to benefit the most, and that's not what happened. No, and I think what's so controversial about sports rorts is the fact that this advice, this expert advice, was actually just like totally overlooked. What we're going to see in the car parking situation is that there wasn't even that expert advice to begin with. <laughs> yes. Before we move on to car parks, though, tell me, what was the result of sports rorts? Who suffered the consequences? Like fucking nobody. <laughs> oh, yeah, cool. That's, yep, that's pork barrel. So the biggest consequence that happened was that 
the Minister for Sport, Bridget McKenzie, was asked to step down from her position. But importantly, she wasn't asked to step down because this whole scheme happened in the first place. She was asked to step down because she had a conflict of interest that she didn't disclose because one of the community sporting organizations that got money, which was this like shooting club, she Mm. was a member of it and she hadn't disclosed that publicly. Which obviously like if you're a member, you need to disclose that stuff because otherwise it seems like you're just giving money to the clubs that you go to. You know, that's that's fairly basic. It did look, we don't know. No, but that's the public perception. But I think it's important to note that the actual, like, rearranging who gets the grants, Mm. making decisions based on some, like, "Mm, is it meritorious, is it electoral kind of interests – no one was sacked for that. No, and it was really blatant how they were using this whole scheme to try and win votes at the federal election. So they literally had these, like, novelty checks that candidates in – like Labour-held seats, the Liberal Party candidate, they would bring up these novelty checks with like Liberal Party written on them and pose for photos handing it to the owners of this community sporting club and post that all over social media. So it was it was so blatant how they were trying to use this to win votes. You say it was so blatant. Yes. Can I explain to you a situation that seems, if anything, more blatant? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, tell me about the car park rorts. Okay, so let me set the scene for you. And spoiler alert, it's the same scene as the sports rorts. Um, The year is 2019. We're heading into a federal election. The coalition, they've just changed Prime Minister. Scott Morrison's in. Everyone's pissed off at them. No one knows what's going on. And everyone's so, so sure that Labor is going to win this election and the coalition is going to get kicked out. They're desperate. They're desperate. So... As we're coming up to the election, the coalition announces these new car park projects. There's 47 car parks. It's worth $660 million all up. They're near train stations. It's going to be great. It's going to reduce congestion. Thank God we're getting all these new car parks. Yeah, so basically the idea is that like you're going to be able to drive to a train station, park your car, get on a train, and avoid that horrible commute into the city. And car parks are quite like visceral tools when it comes to voters. You know, this is something that affects someone on a day-to-day basis. It changes their daily activity. It means that people won't be stuck in traffic. It means public transport's an option. It would be a big incentive for someone in that electorate to want that government to get in. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's also the government making these promises, it really gives voters this impression that, oh, yeah, this is going to happen. Like, if they get into power, they're promising this, this is going to happen. Yeah, and, like, this all sort of happens. It didn't get much fanfare at the time. Like, it's powerful for voters, but it's also fucking car parks who gives a shit. We go to the election and... What's this? The coalition's won. Like, no one expected it. Uh, It's a big surprise. Obviously, there's really no way of telling whether sporting grants or car park grants really made that much of a difference. But the case remains they win the election. We don't really hear anything about it for a couple of years. Fast forward, it's 2021, and suddenly uh, the Australian National Audit Office has been having a poke around at what all of this car park situation was. Someone had smelt a bit of a rat and referred it to them. So just as a sidebar, the Australian National Audit Office, they're this independent body that oversees the government and can look into and assess how the government has spent money on certain projects. Yeah. And then June 28 rolls around and they release a extremely scathing report stating that all of the 47 car park proposals were kind of dodgy. Okay, Matilda, what do you mean by kind of dodgy? Okay. Uh, Let me just paint the picture of how this is supposed to work first. Okay. So 
the government wants to build a bunch of car parks near train stations to reduce congestion. Got it. They either put out a call for applications, Mm -hmm. so local governments or, you know, other areas will be like, we desperately need a car park. We're going to apply to the federal government to get the money for that car park to be built. Cool. Or you send out like some dude from the, you know, Department of Infrastructure, which is the department that's dealing all this. Gerald goes out. He looks at a map. He does all the calculations. He froths car parks. He's (laughs) going through. He's obsessed with them. He just wants to go in, like smell the asphalt. And he compiles this list of like, okay, I think we're going to get most value for money by building an extra car park at this train station this one, this one, this one, that's going to be the cheapest for the amount of congestion we reduce. It's going to benefit the most possible people. Here the, is a the list. The car park sites are all ready to go. Like yeah, we've yeah, got, yeah. you know, this is great land to build there's, a car park on. There's actually a spot to build a car park, <laughs> which we'll play into it later. <laughs> they, uh, the department, the Geralds of the department compile this list. Yeah. The, it goes for approval with the minister, the prime minister. They approve the top meritorious, the most needed ones at the start. Yeah. Right? So, so basically the experts involved in government decide who deserves this car park the most slash where is it going to be the most effective. And importantly, this is happening when the government is in government mode. This is not election mode. Like they're having to represent all of the people and are meant to be working in the best interest of the people. That's not what happened here by the sounds of things. Okay, so what did happen? Okay, the report found that all 47 projects were decided using, and I quote, non-competitive, non-application-based processes that were not demonstrably merit-based. Oh, no. Okay, so so they didn't consult the Geralds of the government. No, the Geralds weren't sent. Who did they consult to decide where these car parks should be built? Yes, they consulted coalition MPs in seats that they were really keen to hold on to, oh. and they asked them, where do you? reckon a train car park should be and obviously those MPs are going to be like gosh the people in my electorate would bloody love a new train car park that would be real helpful for me yes um that's questionable enough yes they also asked for the views of six coalition candidates in seats that were currently being held by like Labor or the Centre Alliance. So seats that they were wanting to win, that they were contesting, they were putting a candidate up for, they wanted to get those back. They go to the candidate who is not a member of parliament and say, where do you reckon would be good to have this train station car park? Which I think the implication heavily would be that these car parks would be something that would help those candidates win the next election. And putting them on this sort of official government list is uh, real questionable. Okay, so let me get this straight. So instead of asking experts, the government went to politicians or candidates in seats that they wanted to either hold on to or win at the 2019 federal election and asked them where in their electorate they should be building a car park. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. That's the situation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But wait, Matilda, how do we know that just like by coincidence, these were not the places most deserving of a car park? Um, Several, several ways. Okay. Um, first of all, 77% of all the car parks that were promised were in coalition held electorates. Uh-huh. Um, and then a further 10% were in those non-coalition electorates where they like asked the views of the candidates. Uh-huh. Um, furthermore, most of these new places were in Melbourne even though Sydney 
has way, way, way more congestion than Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And also of all the ones in Melbourne, they were all like in the southeast area and not a single one of them was in the west where like the absolute massive population boom is in Melbourne is going on at the moment and there's worse infrastructure and you have more people having to drive to train stations and like you really, really need car park train stations over in the west. Not a single one of them was there. So there's not that much question that these did not go to the places where you are going to get most bang for buck help the most people by reducing congestion. And it's important to note that these Western Melbourne electorate seats, they are strong Labor seats, very safe Labor seats. Oh, I'm looking at an electoral map right now. It's like one little dot of green for Melbourne and then just a sea of red (laughs) hanging off west Uh, and then like a kind of like wedge shape of blue going off in the sort of easterly direction. (laughs) Yes. Hmm. And so it wouldn't be politically advantageous for the Liberal National Government to propose building these car parks in super safe Labor seats because the chances of them being able to shift the vote to the Liberal or National Coalition in those seats, pretty small. But it would make more sense politically for them to propose these car parks in electorates and seats where they're like holding on to them like they have a Liberal MP in that seat or they have a good chance of being able to swing the vote in that seat towards them. Yeah, and it's not every single car park, to be clear. Like the occasional car park was built in just a Labor electorate, but we're talking about like the majority of these 47. Okay, so that doesn't sound great. No, uh, but it does get worse. Oh, no, how? (laughs) Tell me how. So um, they promised them, but then they failed to deliver basically all of them. Like what do you mean? So 47 Yeah, we've got that number, 47 car parks. I'm going to get you to guess how many have been built. Ten. Two. Oh. (laughs) And three more are in construction. So five out of 47. After and two years. The election there, was two years ago. And there's 11 projects, which is worth $175 million, that are, have had no assessment work done. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what about the others? Some, you know, some are just like in the pipeline. Some were literally cancelled uh, like months after the coalition winning the election because there was some very basic homework about whether these car parks were even ever possibly viable to build that doesn't seem to have been done. Oh, no. So uh, here's an example. Uh, There was a $15 million commitment to build a big car park near the Balaclava Station, which is in, like, inner Melbourne, St Kilda area. Yes. Which is actually a Labor electorate. And now, since this has all come out, the Labor MP for that electorate, Josh Burns, has actually come forward and told The Guardian that this car park next to Balaclava Station could never have ever happened because the land that they had proposed was already set aside for public housing. It wasn't available land, which is like step one to building something is having a place to build it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, And what he sort of said was, you know, you could have made one call to the state government or the local council in the area and like found out pretty easily that like that (laughs) land wasn't available. It was like, what's that land for? You know, really step one. So not only is there some questions about how and why these locations were chosen, It seems that at least a few of these proposals really were not properly researched. Can I just jump in, Matilda, and talk about the amount of work that does go into people's election promises and that probably should, well, it should definitely be going into people's election promises? Please, please, please do. So when I was working in politics, and I'm going to be very clear, I worked for the Federal Greens, so I only have seen that side of things. But there are 
a huge number of resources that are available to politicians to research and assess their political election promises. For example, there's this thing called the Parliamentary Library, which is available to every politician. They will do lots of research about a policy. There's another department that will help you cost election policy so you can work out how much money it's actually going to cost the government. And the amount of work that would go into developing and assessing the legitimacy of different election policies, at least within my office, was significant. And that's not to say that election promises are not made to help political parties win elections. No, I mean, that's that's the point, isn't that's, it? That's yeah. 100% the point. And so there's obviously policies are going to be made because they're going to be popular amongst people. They're going to help you get votes. They're also going to be made in response to things happening in the media, like a scandal might emerge and a political party will quickly hustle to think of a election promise or a policy proposal or a response that's going to make them seem on the forefront of the issue. Obviously, that happens. But it is so easy for politicians, especially the government, to be able to access experts and research whether or not a policy is going to be viable before they go and promise it. It's just there's no excuse. And and I mean, that's not to say that like the Liberal Party or the coalition doesn't do this for anything. There's a lot of things where these resources are accessed. Hmm. It just appears that for this specific project, it's hard to imagine a heap of that work being able to get done without realising that, like, the land just isn't available. <laughs> it reminds me of, have you heard the expression Coke and the Bubblers? No. What's okay. this? So Coke and the Bubblers is this term that's used to describe politicians who promise things knowing or like without having done the work to know that they can deliver on their promises. Oh, so like a school election? Like yes, okay. Yes. So it's a, it's like the analogy is that, you know, if you're in like a high school class captain election and a kid gets up and is like, I promise Coca-Cola in the school bubblers and all the kids are like, yay! And then they vote for this person to be class captain. There's no way that the school would let you put Coca-Cola in the bubblers. And the analogy here would be that, you know, These car parks were promised in seats in some cases that the government wanted to win. That's a very popular policy to push Mm. out. Yeah, you're saying Coke in the bubblers, but it's like the most boring possible thing, which is like (laughs) five minutes cut off my commute from finding a car park. (laughs) Coke in the bubblers, five minutes shorter commute, same thing. Also, to be clear, didn't work in McNamara. Josh Burns still won. Yeah. Um, So it didn't always work for them. No, Um, absolutely not. We don't know what the effects are going to be because there's just so many factors that go into someone winning an election. There's a truly, it'll be impossible to ever sort of really pinpoint exactly what this did, exactly what sports rorts did. Yes. So this whole situation seems pretty serious. So how has the government defended itself? Okay, so the government's defence is pretty simple. They say that we were allowed to do all of this because these were election promises. This wasn't us acting as the government, as the power of the government, uh, you know, to make decisions for Australia. This was us as, you know, the Liberal and National Parties, the coalition, trying to win votes and, like, putting forward your argument as to why you should re-elect us. Weird distinction. Weird dis- I know that that sounds weird that that's the distinction. I'll explain why that's important, and that's basically the central question of whether this was pork barrelling or not okay. um, is whether the- it was election promises to begin with. When the government calls an election, it-, it does this thing, it goes into caretaker mode. What You explain that to me. So caretaker mode basically means all the politicians take a step back and the country is essentially run by all the admin staff. Yeah, and it's because all those politicians are trying to win re-election. They need to be doing things in their own interest to get re-elected, which doesn't always gel with, like, 
running the country in the best possible way, especially if it's like it's going to be a lot easier for like someone who's like the health minister to be able to make all these sweeping changes to the health system (laughs) to get re-elected than like some random Labor candidate who's going up against them in some random electorate. You know what I mean? They're not supposed to do things like propose legislation and pass bills while they're in caretaker mode because they can be like, oh, look at me passing this bill to benefit all of you people if you vote for me. Yeah, exactly. So that power is taken away. But there's a real question about exactly when these decisions were made and if they were made before caretaker mode like as the government acting as the government that's the real sort of pork barreling central problem and the Australian National Audit Office reckons that 38 of these were made by the government as the government and not by the government like as their re-election process. So 38 of the car parks were decided by the government as the government. Yeah, and look, there's a lot of like little tiny details and which reports things were written in and stuff that make has made the audit office come to that conclusion. But that is the conclusion of the audit office, which is that 38 was made in the power of the government, which means that they should have gone through the proper process. Seven were actually election commitments and wait for it. Mm-hmm. Two, we have no fucking clue where they came from. <laughs> <laughs> they just appeared in a media release oh, no, one day. Literally, literally. There's two that one was like, there's the, we asked for evidence and they gave us like half an email and then like a media release so they're like where, where and like as you said there's a lot of work that goes into like commitments beforehand especially infrastructure commitments yeah it's very weird that like a media release would be not only the end result but seemingly the start the whole decision making <laughs> process to build these car parks was just like some guy writing a media release in someone's office yeah it, it seems like that um which is yeah not ideal concerning so, So that's the government's defence, which is they're saying, no, we disagree with the audit office. These were election commitments. The Australian National Audit Office says that it wasn't. And it's really seeming like most people are siding with the Australian National Audit Office. It's been pretty universally declared as pork barrelling. Okay, so if it is pork barrelling, then what are the consequences? Does the government face any repercussions for this? Mm, Probably not. (laughs) So, look, there might be an investigation into the whole scheme. We don't really know. There might be an inquiry. But, like, let's take a quick look back, you know, at what happened with sports rorts. Yeah, so when the public discovered that sports rorts happened, the worst that occurred was that the Minister for Sport at the time, Bridget McKenzie, was asked to step down from her portfolio and move to the shadows of government. But again, not for even the grants bit. That was no. the conflict of interest bit. Just because she was a member of one of the clubs that got some of the funding and hadn't disclosed that. So really, it's very unlikely that there are going to be any consequences coming from this car park rot. It really doesn't seem like it. The only, I guess, the only thing that this kind of could do is once again raise this sort of cry from the people for the Independent Commission Against Corruption, ICAC, a federal ICAC. What, tell me, what is this fabled thing? So an ICAC is an independent legal body that has the power to review, hold hearings and give consequences to politicians for doing essentially corrupt behaviour while in parliament. And a lot of people want an ICAC, right? Like Labor wants it. Yeah, Labor wants it, the Greens wants it, the Crossbench wants it, to the point where at the end of 2019, the Greens successfully passed a bill calling for a federal ICAC in the Senate. The problem is that the federal government still holds the majority of seats in the lower house of parliament. And in order for an ICAC to get put into law, 
it needs to pass both houses of parliament. And that would mean the federal government, who now has multiple cases of there being pork barrelling accusations against them, voting for the creation of a body that would expose in great detail. And investigate and and give consequences to these situations. They're like, we have this thing that we've done that currently has no consequences and we could either do nothing and never have any consequences or we could go out of our way to create a legal body that will very clearly bring down consequences upon us most likely. So which should we do? (laughs) Yes, and so I don't think that we're going to get a federal ICAC if the current government stays in government. It's kind of a bit of a catch-22 because, like, we were saying this before, it feels like these things are so hard to wrap your head around. They're so complicated. We've Mm. spent hours hours trying to just figure out how to even explain this. It's so complicated that it means that people don't pay attention to it, which means it doesn't get political momentum, which means it doesn't really affect elections, which means that the changes that need to be made by having this political momentum can't get made because the election doesn't change because there is no political momentum to begin with. Do I make any sense? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think the way a simple way to put it is that a lot of politicians are banging their heads against brick walls trying to get a federal ICAC set up and trying to get people to pay attention to the importance of a federal ICAC. But it's really hard to make something like a federal ICAC an understandable and more than that, a sexy issue that people can get around. Well, like speaking of a sexy issue, like this isn't like a minister having an affair and all of this. Like it's not like juicy. It's change rooms at a hockey club and like a car park in, you know, some outer suburb. Like it's not Mm. interesting topics. Mm. So people don't pay as much attention and that's of great benefit to the government. Yeah, definitely. So hopefully, I don't know, if you listen to this podcast, maybe you understand it a bit more and maybe now you'll want an ICAC. Yeah, we love an ICAC. To be clear, every every party has a bit of pork barreling. Labor's not. Oh, not. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, is that Labor wants an ICAC, but they don't want an ICAC that's going to go looking into any discretions past, like, the last 10 years. <laughs> no reason. No reason. No reason. Don't worry. Does, no it's reason. It's nothing to do with the fact that Labor was in power, like, 10 years ago. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no Just, no. It, we don't want the, the, the paperwork. <sighs> <sighs> That is all we have time for this week. Oh my god! I need, I need to stop doing that. I need to stop saying "Oh my gosh!" Right at the every end. time you're like, "Oh, what a week it was." But this one, I mean, I had to like read a report. I had to understand what congestion matrix communications are. I did a lot. I'm proud of you. The people are grateful, and we need to show our gratitude to some other people by giving thanks to those who've shouted us out on Instagram this week. That is Marin, Jess, Shanine, Bethany, Tony, Shivani, Lauren, Ruth, the No Worries Podcast, Sophie, Emma, Haley, and Liz. And before we go, we would like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Burrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Now, the theme music for our podcast is by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. And, and this, this is Old Boys Club, the multi-level car park of the podcasting world. By that, I mean convenient, questionable how I got here. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Pingu used to be the only book big enough in the primary school library to hide the um like how are you made book so you'd used to just read which is like had all the cartoons of the people like having sex talking about like how babies are made and like puberty and it had like pictures of boobs and stuff in it so you used to just watch people like really intently reading pingu and you knew what was going on 